You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Explorers. Today's episode is part two of Ferdinand Magellan and the circumnavigation of the world. Last time, we left off with Magellan setting sail from Spain on September 20th, 1519. He commanded a fleet of five ships, the Armada de Maluca. His mission was to find a way into the Pacific Ocean so that Spain could create its own trade route to the legendary Spice Islands, the source of such yummy things as nutmeg and cloves, all of which were worth a fortune in Europe. Magellan's journey to this point had not been an easy one. He had been rejected by his homeland, Portugal, and been forced to turn to Spain, Portugal's natural enemy, to back his expedition to the Far East. His family and reputation had been attacked because of his perceived betrayal. And let's not forget about a purported assassination plot. Also, the House of Trade, led by Archbishop Fonseca, had undermined him in several ways, such as limiting how many Portuguese sailors could be in the fleet, and removing key officers and replacing them with Fonseca allies, most notably Juan de Cartagena, Fonseca's illegitimate son. Magellan had also endured financial shortfalls, courtesy of the Spanish crown, and he had been forced to kick out his partner, Rue Filiro, due to the latter's unstable mental state. And if that all wasn't enough, a lot of the Spanish just did not trust Magellan. In a lot of ways, it was a miracle the Armada de Maluca set sail at all. But sail it did, setting forth from the port of San Lucar de Baramita in southwest Spain. Before we get to sea, let's take a look at Magellan's fleet. As noted, it consisted of five vessels, including the fleet's flagship, Trinidad, which was under Magellan's command. San Antonio, the largest ship in the fleet, was under the command of Cartagena, and Concepcion's captain was a Spaniard, Gaspar de Quesada, while Victoria was commanded by Luis Mendoza, also a Spaniard. Santiago was captained by Juan Serrano, a man whose nationality is a little in dispute there. He could have been Portuguese or Spanish, but we don't know for sure. But we just need to know that he is considered an ally of Magellan. Of the five, Cartagena, Quesada, and Mendoza were considered company men, loyal to the House of Trade first and Magellan second. Some would argue Magellan last, as Cartagena considered himself an equal to Magellan. And the three Spanish captains, Cartagena, Quesada, and Mendoza, did not trust Magellan because of his Portuguese nationality. The fleet numbered roughly 270 men. There were no women. It is not a bad idea to do a rundown of those 270 men, just to give you an idea of how the personnel in the fleet were put together. First, at the bottom of the pecking order, you would have the common pages. These were young kids, often orphans, uh, not yet teens. They had the worst jobs on the ship, they scrubbed the decks and washed clothes and cleaned up after meals, your basic manual labor-type chores. There were also pages for the officers. These were young boys as well, but they came from well-to-do families or had connections in some way. They served as the personal servant and butler to the officers. Their lot was much better than the common pages. Next in line were the apprentices. They were usually in their later teens and were often assigned the most dangerous jobs on the ship. Need someone to climb the rigging in a storm? Get the apprentice. No point in losing an experienced man. After the apprentices came the sailors. These were the veterans of the sea, and they had their certification to prove it. Your common sailor ranged from his late teens up to around 40. 
Men rarely went to sea after the age of 40. It was a hard and demanding life, suitable only for the most able-bodied. After the common sailors, you had your various specialists. Gunners, carpenters, caulkers, coopers, divers. You also had a barber, who was really a doctor-slash-surgeon-slash-dentist. Plus, there was an astronomer and several priests. Next, you had your officers. This included a steward, a bosun, a master-at-arms, who was like the professional soldier on the ship, and a pilot. Each vessel had its own master, as well as captain. And then finally, there was the captain general. That was Magellan in this expedition. He commanded everyone and everything. The captain general was the final say at sea. Sailors lived by a tuft, strict code, and Magellan's word was law. Cartagena, the captain of San Antonio, was also the inspector general of the expedition. The inspector general oversaw the fleet's trading operations and finances. And just as important, he was second in command, after Magellan. With all those details out of the way, we can turn to Magellan's voyage. As mentioned earlier, the Armada de Maluca set sail on September 20th, 1519. Their first stop was the Canary Islands. The Canaries lay off the coast of Africa, just west of modern-day Morocco. They are a perfect jumping-off point to the Americas. Magellan reached the Canaries on September 26th, so just about a week later. In that time, he quickly developed a reputation for his meticulous and strict procedures, causing many in the fleet to resent their Portuguese commander. The Spanish captains and officers took it as an insult that they had to take orders from a foreigner. The Venetian scholar brought on board to chronicle the expedition, Antonio Picafetta, said this much about the situation. Quote, the masters and captains did not love him. End quote. And that pretty much sums it up. It didn't help that Magellan was a maniacally secretive man, refusing to share with the officers such things as the route he proposed to sail. He could also be dismissive of his officers when they asked questions. He was the captain general and he did not need to explain anything to anyone. This all led to a growing resentment from many of the Spanish leaders, such as Cartagena, and it is an issue that will dog Magellan literally to his dying breath. The Canary Islands offered one last chance to take on supplies and do general maintenance before the long voyage across the Atlantic. Unfortunately for the Armada de Maluca, many of the provisions they took on at the Canaries would turn out to be bad, the issue wouldn't come to light until they were well into their journey. That this happened is uncharacteristic of Magellan, because normally he was diligent and obsessive about such things as this, and would have checked the supplies himself. But it seems the Captain General had other things on his mind, and speed was of the essence. So why was Magellan so eager to depart the Canary Islands? The answer is that while in port, he received a message that the Portuguese had dispatched a pair of fleets to stop the Armada, King Manuel had no desire to hand the Spanish a route to the Spice Islands, and he had ordered Magellan's arrest. Thus, Magellan was eager to put the Canaries in his wake and avoid what was probably a certain death if he was captured. Also, while in the Canaries, Magellan received another disturbing communication, this one describing a plot by the Spanish captains in the fleet, Cartagena, Quesada, and Mendoza, to seize control of the expedition if they felt Magellan was not actually working in the best interests of Spain and the Board of Trade. Fearing for the future of the expedition, as well as his life, Magellan left the Canaries on October 3rd. At this point, the logical choice is to sail directly west, but Magellan had two things to consider. 
One, he had the Portuguese to worry about. If he wanted to avoid capture, sailing a less obvious route would be to his advantage. Second, remember that Magellan is looking for a route through the American continents. If he sails directly west, he heads to the Caribbean. But that does him no good. The Caribbean is a dead end, and Magellan knows it. He is destined for the South American coast, modern-day Brazil and Argentina. That's where he believes he will find a passage into the Western Sea. Thus, Magellan strikes out to the south, along the coast of Africa. His luck holds for a while, but then he encounters a series of storms that bogs down the fleet. And then, after the storms, he runs into the equatorial calms, leaving the fleet dead in the water for an extended time. The route does allow Magellan to dodge the Portuguese, but it also gets the fleet all worked up as they wonder what the heck he is up to. Remember, Magellan has not told anyone the route that he intends to take for his voyage, and he's not letting anyone in on the fact that a couple of fleets of Portuguese ships are out looking for them. That might have caused a mutiny right then and there. And speaking of mutiny, it's time for the first of several that will plague our expedition. As the fleet waited for the winds to arrive to take them across the ocean, Magellan rationed food, causing grumbling amongst the crew. Then he had to deal with a crisis when one of the ship's masters, a Sicilian named Antonio Salomon, was caught sodomizing a cabin boy. Magellan had Salomon put on trial, and the man was sentenced to death, the punishment for homosexuality at the time. Combine the harsh sentencing with the reduced rations, the erratic course, and the secret of nature of Magellan, and you have a volatile situation. Add insubordination to the mix, and things are ready to explode. The insubordination that I mention came courtesy of Juan de Cartagena, captain of the San Antonio and the fleet's second-in-command. Magellan had set up a system where every day at dusk, each ship would sail up to the Trinidad and pay their respects to the captain-general. Cartagena began to omit Magellan's correct title, an insult to the prickly Magellan and a challenge to his authority. Sensing that emotions were about to boil over, Magellan invited the fleet's captains aboard Trinidad. Cartagena questioned Magellan's erratic course, his harsh treatment of the crew, and accused him of really being loyal to Portugal. He then announced that he would refuse to take any further orders from Magellan. Magellan responded by seizing Cartagena, with the help of several men, including Trinidad's master-at-arms, Gonzalo Gomez de Espinosa, and Duarte Barbosa, Magellan's brother-in-law. Cartagena pleaded with the other captains, specifically Mendoza and Quesada, both fellow Spaniards, to join him, but neither of them did. The mutiny was effectively over. It is important to remember something about naval life at this time. It was one thing to be upset or angry with your commander, but it was another thing to mutiny. Mutiny was a death sentence for no matter how harsh or damning things may be for a crew. To rise up against the ship's captain was the gravest of crimes. It was nearly unforgivable. You just didn't do it unless you were prepared to never go home again. Cartagena probably crossed that line thinking he would have the backing of his powerful father. He would also be able to argue that he was saving the expedition from the traitorous Magellan. But the other captains weren't so lucky in their connections, so they weren't ready to confront Magellan, at least not yet. When all was said and done, Magellan could have executed Cartagena, but likely realizing that killing one of the most powerful men in Spain's son was a dicey proposition, 
he instead stripped Cartagena of his captaincy and his power. Quesada and Mendoza convinced Magellan to place Cartagena in their custody, arguing that, hey, we're loyal, we didn't turn on you when we could have, and Magellan agreed. Cartagena was free to stew in his humiliation and plot his revenge. The mutiny was over, and Magellan's power reigned supreme, for now. The winds would eventually become favorable, and the fleet would strike out southwest across the Atlantic, bound for South America. Since we are at sea, let's take a moment and understand a little about what the men aboard the Armada de Maluca faced on this voyage. Life on a ship was a pretty miserable existence, and a long voyage across the ocean was no picnic. Food, which has already been rationed, was bad, not to mention compromised by vermin such as weevils and rats and mice. And then there were bugs, cockroaches, lice, all of which infested much of the ship. Shipworms, a plague on all vessels, ate everything, including the ship itself. Clean water was also a problem. Cleaning and washing was often done with seawater, which would leave sailors with itchy and irritated skin. This all goes with a monotony that could overwhelm many men. So when Magellan and his fleet sighted land, the coast of Brazil, on November 29, 1519, the crew was likely ecstatic. Two weeks later, the fleet sailed into Santa Lucia Bay, the site of modern-day Rio de Janeiro. The location had been reached years earlier by Europeans, and the site contained an abandoned storehouse, the remnant of Portuguese merchants who harvested the local timber, Brazil wood, which was highly valued in Europe. In fact, the Portuguese pilot of Concepcion, a man named Zuao Lopez Carvalho, had spent several years in the region working in the Brazil wood industry. He found that he had a seven-year-old son, the result of his previous relationship with a native woman. The boy would join the fleet as a servant. Carvalho wanted to bring the boy's mother, but Magellan would have none of that. Women on a ship, Magellan felt, were a distraction that the crew could ill afford. Fortunately for Magellan and his armada, their arrival coincided with the end of a drought in the region. The locals took the fleet as a sign of good luck and welcomed them with open arms. For Magellan and his crew, it was a chance to escape months aboard the cramped ships. It brought fresh food, drinks, and freedoms, and best of all, women. Pigafetta reported that the local women had no problem trading sexual favors for trinkets such as knives and beads, and this led to nightly celebrations on the beach, two weeks of drinking and orgies that must have made the crew of the Armada de Maluca feel like they were in paradise. A strict religious man, Magellan did not partake in the festivities, but wisely he let his men indulge. After all, they had a difficult journey ahead of them. Two things I want to mention about the time spent at Santa Lucia Bay. First, on December 20th, an ugly event would occur. Remember Antonio Salomon? He was the officer convicted of crimes against nature when he was discovered sodomizing a cabin boy. The sentence was carried out here with Salomon strangled in front of the rest of the men, a cruel warning to everyone in the fleet that Magellan held ultimate power. Second, Magellan will make it a habit to maintain strict religious observances, both for the sake of his men and to impress upon the local people the power of Christianity. With Christmas upon them, Magellan invited the locals to attend Mass. Pigafetta reported that the natives were easily converted to the Christian faith. So this begins a pattern for Magellan. His devout nature will lead him to reach out to the native people he encounters 
and he will try and convert them to Christianity. No doubt he felt that it was a sincere duty to spread the word of Christ, but his insistence on doing so will have unintended consequences. After a two-week respite and the fleet replenished with supplies, Magellan and the Armada headed south along the South American coast. It's important to realize how painstaking and slow this process would be. Remember, Magellan is looking for a strait, a passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific. He has to be checking out rivers and inlets and bays, finding out if any of them are his elusive passage. In a lot of ways, Magellan was the perfect man for this. He was thorough and persistent and systematic, and he made sure he did not bypass his prize. The fleet reached the Rio de la Plata in mid-January. The Rio de la Plata, the River of Silver, is fed by the confluence of the Uruguay and Parana rivers. The modern-day city of Buenos Aires sits at its head. The river's immense size made many early visitors believe it was the strait to the western sea. Portuguese explorers had reached this far south in 1512, and the Spanish a few years later. The Spanish expedition, under Juan de Solas, had sent ashore seven men to meet with the local natives. Unfortunately, the men were captured, killed, and eaten, de Solas included. The natives reportedly cooked them on the beach in clear view of the Spanish ships. So Magellan and his men were wary. They investigated the Rio de la Plata, but avoided going ashore for fear of meeting the same fate as de Solis's men. After a few days, they dismissed the river as their strait, and the fleet moved on. While there is some speculation that earlier Portuguese expeditions had gone further south than this, there is no hard evidence to support such theories. So as Magellan ventured down the coast, his fleet was literally traveling into uncharted territory. The voyage along the South American coast grew more difficult as winter approached, with storms plaguing the fleet. With the weather growing worse by the day, Magellan knew he'd have to bring his fleet into safe haven for the winter. He found it on March 31st when he entered a natural harbor he would dub Puerto San Julian. This would be the fleet's home for the winter. Puerto San Julian is located in southern Argentina, about 200 miles or so north of the passage that Magellan was searching for. The idea was that they would build lodging, hunt for fresh game and fish, and attend to the ships, most of which needed some type of repair after nearly eight months at sea, and then they would hunker down for the winter. But before much could happen, we come to our second mutiny. Yes, it's time for another mutiny, but this one is going to be much more bloody than the first. Let's take a moment to remember that Magellan is pushing his expedition into uncharted territory. Storms and cold and cannibals await. Also, Magellan has imposed food rationing for the fleet, a caution most felt unnecessary. Many in the fleet, both officers and common seamen alike, wanted to call it a day. I mean, why not just go home? Of course, Magellan was going to have none of this. Much of this goes back to Magellan's personality. He wasn't just stubborn and ambitious, but he was also very religious. And signing on with Spain and King Charles, and taking command of the expedition, was likely a sacred vow to him. He wasn't going to back off due to some tough times. He had King Charles and God on his side, and the heck with what everyone else thought. This all led to the April 1st Easter Mutiny. So let's take a few moments and draw up the adversaries. In Magellan's corner was his flagship, Trinidad. 
He could also expect support from Santiago, which was under the command of Juan Serrano. There was also San Antonio, Cartagena's old ship, but she is now under the command of Alvaro de Mesquita, Magellan's cousin. On the Spanish side, the ringleader is our old friend Cartagena. He spent the voyage across the Atlantic on board Concepcion, which was commanded by Gaspar de Casada, and the two had become plotting buddies ever since. The final ship was Victoria, which was captained by Luis Mendoza, a Spaniard. But remember, Mendoza had not turned on Magellan during the last mutiny, so his loyalty was questionable. At this point, Magellan knew that his captains were not happy. He tried to quell the rebelliousness by bringing them together for a we're-all-in-this-together type speech. Unfortunately, it didn't sway Cartagena or Quesada. And thus, on April 1st, 1520, the plot was hatched. Quesada and a group of men boarded San Antonio. Remember, this had been Cartagena's ship, so they felt that it would be ripe for rebellion. In the ensuing scuffle, Juan de Alariga, the ship's master, tried to stop the mutiny, but he was stabbed by Quesada. In short order, San Antonio was in the hands of the mutineers. Mosquito was put in chains. Alariga would die of his wounds, but not for several months. Word of the mutiny quickly spread to the other ships, and Victoria's crew, under Mendoza's command, joined the rebellion, giving Cartagena control of three of the five vessels in the fleet. Santiago, under Serrano, remained neutral during this initial clash. Faced with a full-scale revolt, Magellan opted to parley with the mutineers, but at the same time he plotted his revenge. The mutineers sent their demands to Magellan, better food, less harsh treatment, and most importantly, a return to Spain. They did not want to spend the winter in this harsh environment. As a delaying tactic, Magellan agreed to meet the mutineers on board San Antonio to talk terms. But let's remember who we're talking about here. Magellan is not going to back down from these guys. Instead of trying to mess with San Antonio, Magellan sent a group of five men to Victoria, Mendoza's ship. This included Trinidad's master-at-arms, Gonzalo Gomez de Espinosa. These men went over saying that they had wanted to join the mutiny, but they were really just a distraction. And that's because while this was happening, 15 more men, led by Magellan's brother-in-law, Duarte Barbosa, approached Victoria by stealth and boarded the ship. A quick fight ensued, and Mendoza was killed. Victoria was back in the hands of Magellan. Next, Santiago ended its neutrality and pledged its loyalty to Magellan. Suddenly, the tables had turned. Magellan then blocked the harbor of Puerto San Julian to prevent the mutineers from making a run for it. Cartagena and Quesada were trapped. Acting decisively, Magellan next sent a man to Concepcion, who cut the ship's anchor cable. Concepcion unknowingly started to drift toward Magellan's ships. When Concepcion got close enough to Trinidad, they opened fire, completely catching Concepcion by surprise. In short order, the vessel was boarded, and Concepcion was taken without the loss of a single life. Cartagena, now surrounded and his allies deserting him, gave up. The mutiny was over, but there will be retribution to be distributed, and the aftermath of the Easter mutiny will prove to be more bloody than the actual event. Magellan was just not the victor. He was God at this moment, and he held ultimate power, and he was going to use it. To start, the body of Captain Mendoza, who had died when Victoria had been retaken, was drawn and quartered. 
the various parts were put on display to warn others the fate of mutineers. To deal with all the mutineers, a court was set up, and Magellan's cousin, Mesquita, was put in charge of the proceedings. In some respects, Mendoza was lucky to have died in the fighting, because Spain is the nation that perfected torture with the Inquisition, and Magellan was going to use it freely and without hesitation. The primary torture employed was the strapado, which is actually five stages of torture. Each stage gets increasingly more brutal. I'm not going to go into the details of the torture that was inflicted upon the various members of the crew, but it was not fun. Some died from the torture, others were crippled. The result was a terrified crew that was going to think long and hard about rebelling in the future. In the end, 40 men were sentenced to death, but their sentences were commuted due to the need for bodies. You just can't remove 15% of the fleet's personnel and expect things to be fine. The men were put in chains and forced to do hard labor for the winter. Gaspar de Casada, the captain of Concepcion, was also sentenced to death, but there would be no reprieve for him. His personal servant, Luis de Molina, was given the option of cutting off his master's head or dying with him. Molina chose the former. Quesada's body was then drawn and quartered. The Easter Mutiny was a culmination of many things. Without question, there was a Spanish versus Portuguese element, but it was more than that. It was the result of men under extreme stress, both physical and mental, reaching a breaking point. Magellan and Cartagena were powerful personalities, and the conflict was almost inevitable. But we should note that Magellan isn't without fault here. He was secretive, refusing to trust his men with even the simplest explanation as to why they were doing things the way they were. He was also dismissive and contemptuous of his captains and officers, playing the I'm the boss card whenever challenged. And his brutal methods, while effective in keeping the crew in line, will have lasting effects. In the end, Magellan saved the expedition with his decisive actions, and he solidified his control on the fleet with a ruthless and bloody response. Now, you're probably wondering about our friend Juan de Cartagena, the leader of this failed mutiny. Well, Cartagena had been a thorn in Magellan's side for far too long. By all rights, he should have been executed, but Magellan knew the dangers of taking that step. Instead, Magellan locked up Cartagena, likely with the idea of just letting the man rot. And perhaps Cartagena could have made it through things alive if he had played his cards right. But instead, he will make one more grasp for power, and with the help of a priest, Pero Sanchez de la Reina, Cartagena began to plot another mutiny. Yes, another mutiny. Some guys just never learn. You get the feeling that Cartagena is that spoiled rich kid who won't take no for an answer and has an unwavering faith that he will get what he wants in the end. But unfortunately for Cartagena, his time is past. He has gone too far, and his father is not around to get him out of this mess. No one was in the mood for such plotting. Mutiny, everyone had learned, meant torture and death. The plot was quickly unveiled, and Cartagena's fate was sealed. And while Magellan didn't execute the man, it didn't mean he had to keep him around. When the fleet departs Puerto San Julian in the spring, both Cartagena and his fellow plotter, the priest Reña, will be left on an island off the coast of Argentina. Neither will be heard from again. With this mutiny out of the way, the men of the Armada de Maluca prepared their winter quarters. They also set out to gather food and supplies, as well as repair the ships. 
It was here that Magellan found that many of the provisions provided in the Canary Islands were worthless. He basically had only a third of what he thought he had purchased. This increased the need for fresh provisions. Fortunately, the local Tuwelchi natives became friendly with the fleet. The Tuwelchi were described as giants by Picafetta, and the Europeans called them Pathagoni, a name which survives to this day as the region is called Patagonia. The Tuwelchi showed the Europeans how to catch guanacos, a llama-like animal which roams the area and would provide meat and warm clothing for the crew, and they also helped them with fishing and hunting. Magellan would eventually try and convert some of the natives to Christianity, continuing a pattern of behavior that will hearken to his downfall later. There are several important incidents in the coming months that will greatly affect the expedition. The first is Magellan's decision to send a ship south to scout the coastline. It was an unfortunate decision because the Europeans did not understand how severe the local weather could be at this time of year. With Serrano as captain, Santiago made its way 60 miles further south, discovering the mouth of the Santa Cruz River. But here they ran into a squall, and the ship ran onto some rocks. To prevent it from sinking, Serrano beached the ship. Luckily, all 37 men survived. But San Antonio was not so lucky, and she was torn apart. Serrano sent two men north in the hope of reaching Puerto San Julian. The two men had to cross the Santa Cruz River, which is about three miles wide, and then travel overland about a hundred miles to reach San Julian. It was an arduous journey, made in unknown territory in the winter, but the men made it. Not wanting to risk a second ship during the rough weather, Magellan responded by sending a rescue party of 24 men overland to bring back the beleaguered crew of Santiago. Miraculously, all 37 of the crew returned along with the entire rescue party. Unfortunately, the incident reinforced the fears of many in the fleet, and that is that what lay ahead was nothing but danger, and Magellan was a madman leading them to their doom. The final incident that occurred was with the local Tuwelchi natives. While relations had gone pretty well up to this point with the Patagonians, a hidden cache of weapons was discovered by members of the fleet. The fear of being killed and eaten quickly overtook all parties, and in short order, a small battle ensued. In the end, Magellan and his crew would drive off the natives and capture two of the Tuwelchi, whom they would take with them on their journey. The fleet would spend five months in winter quarters. Remember, the nights are very long here. At its worst, the men of the Armada de Maluca saw only four hours of sunlight a day. But the fleet persevered through the long nights and the frigid cold. They gathered what supplies they could and tended to the ships, and finally spring arrived. On August 24, 1520, the fleet, now reduced to four ships, set sail for good from Puerto San Julian, depositing the mutineer Cartagena and his accomplice along the way. Magellan was ready to resume the search for a passage to the Western Sea. Storms battered the fleet from the start, and after going only 60 miles, Magellan sailed up the Santa Cruz River in order to avoid the worst of the weather. He would stay there for six more weeks. Then, on October 18th, Magellan would finally put to sea again. Three days later, on October 21st, the fleet found an opening, quote, like a bay, unquote, reported Albo, the pilot, in his logbook. As the bay narrowed, some thought they had found another river, but the water was not fresh. It was salty, and it was deep, and it had strong currents. A little over one year after departing Spain, 
Magellan had found his strait. Magellan's elusive strait was recorded by Albo to be at 52 degrees latitude and 52 and a half degrees longitude. The fleet had found the opening on the Festival of the 11,000 Virgins, and thus the cape that marked its entrance was dubbed the Cape of the 11,000 Virgins as well. This was the passage that Magellan had been searching for for more than a year. Unfortunately for Magellan and his crew, the strait they were entering was, well, not straight. It was more like a maze. They didn't know it, but the fleet had a twisting voyage of more than 300 miles ahead of them. The strait sort of goes southwest, then dips to the south, before heading northwest and into the Pacific. If you look at a map of it, it might seem pretty simple, but in reality it is a maze with false turns around every corner, and as with exploring the coast of South America, the voyage to the strait was a slow and tedious process. The strait had deep waters with strong currents and swirling tides, and there were countless bays and inlets that had to be explored. The weather was different here than at sea. It was stormy and cloudy with unpredictable winds, making for taking measurements difficult. There were fast, violent squalls, called willowas, that would strike the area. And let's not forget the cold. Remember, we're not far from Antarctica. The fleet must have felt small and lonely as they gradually moved west, surrounded by collapsing glaciers and walls of ice 500 feet high and snow-capped mountains. Oh, and let's not forget the fires. The fleet reported seeing fires to the south at night, thus dubbing the land Tierra del Fuego, the land of fire. The crews believed the fires were the local natives, people the fleet never saw. But the fires may have just been natural occurrences, such as lightning strikes. No matter, it must have looked ominous as the armada inched onward. The strait itself is many miles wide at times, and about a mile wide at its narrowest point. Due to the great depth, the ships often could not drop anchor. It can't be stressed enough how hazardous the journey was for the armada through the strait. Thankfully, Magellan was up to the task. He always had lookouts on alert, and he would send out longboats to search out dangerous shoals. He would also send ships into bays and up rivers to scout, thus saving valuable time and energy. They quickly learned to taste the water. If it became fresher, they knew they were heading inland. If it was salty, they were going in the right direction. I recommend taking a look at a map of the Strait of Magellan. I put one on our website at explorerspodcast.com. The Strait looks obvious on the map, but we have to remember these men were sailing into an unknown world. They didn't have charts telling them where rocks hid just beneath the surface, or which bay was a dead end. It was a slow and tedious process fraught with unknown perils. But slowly and surely, the Armada de Maluca moved forward. On October 28th, just a week after entering the strait, the fleet arrived at a point where the strait extended in several directions. Magellan sent Concepcion under Serrano in one direction, while San Antonio under Mesquita went in another. Trinidad and Victoria followed a third passage to the northwest. Concepcion and San Antonio had orders to rendezvous with Magellan in four days and report their findings. This was a common tactic of Magellan's. When multiple options lay ahead of him, he would send a ship up each passage to scout ahead. They would then regroup at a designated time and place and determine the best option to proceed. It allowed the fleet to cover more ground. Magellan headed up a passage that went northwesterly. After a day or so, he anchored Trinidad so as not to get too far ahead of Concepcion and San Antonio. He then sent Victoria ahead to scout the passage. 
The vessel returned three days later with a report that ahead of them they had spotted a, quote, sea great and wide, end quote. Magellan believed that he had found the strait's exit point. When he heard the news, Pigafetta reported that the captain general began to cry. So we found our strait, and our fleet is proceeding toward the western sea. So what's it time for? That's right, another mutiny. We have to bounce back a little to set the stage for this latest betrayal. At the time of the Easter mutiny, Alvaro de Mosquita, Magellan's cousin, was given command of San Antonio. Mosquita's qualifications were his bloodlines. He didn't really have the experience to command a ship, but Magellan valued loyalty above all else at that point. This angered the ship's Portuguese pilot, a man named Estevo Gomez, who felt that he should have been given command of San Antonio. It was Gomez who took on many of the tasks that a knowledgeable captain should have been able to handle. He quickly came to resent serving under an undeserving captain. It should be noted that Gomez had a checkered history with Magellan. He supposedly proposed to the Spanish crown his own expedition to the Spice Islands, but it was rejected in favor of Magellan's plan. He had been forced to take a job as a pilot with Magellan instead of commanding his own fleet. As the Armada moved further into the strait, Magellan calculated he had about three months of provisions remaining, enough to reach the Spice Islands, he thought. But Gomez disagreed and argued that they had found the strait and they should return to Spain. It wasn't a bad argument, but that wasn't going to happen. Magellan was on a mission under God's authority and there would be no turning back. The attitude grated at Gomez, whose fear and distrust was mirrored by many in the fleet. And this brings us to the disappearance of San Antonio. As planned, Concepcion would reunite with Trinidad and Victoria, but when San Antonio didn't appear from its scouting mission, the fleet retraced their steps to try and locate the wayward vessel. But she was nowhere to be found. Magellan searched at length for the ship, even sending a vessel all the way back to the entrance of the strait. But there was no sign of San Antonio. It was possible the ship had sunk. Perhaps she had struck a shoal or been caught in some other disaster. But when no traces of wreckage or survivors were found, Magellan feared the worst. Mutiny. And he would be right. San Antonio was at that point on its way back to Spain. What exactly happened is uncertain, because while the ship did return to Spain, the stories told by the survivors were likely concocted to avoid being tried for mutiny. As best as we can discern, here's the likely tale. San Antonio got lost in the labyrinth of the strait. The inexperienced captain, Mesquita, tried to rejoin the rest of the fleet, even firing off guns and smoke signals to try and garner someone's attention, but with no luck. Instead of floundering around the strait, searching for Magellan, like Mesquita wanted to do, Gomez led a mutiny. Mesquita was quickly overwhelmed and put in chains. The San Antonio fled, free of Magellan, and the death that many felt awaited them. We will revisit San Antonio's return to Spain in a later episode, but for now, let's go back to Magellan and the rest of the ships of the Armada de Maluca. Magellan was no doubt terrified at the loss of San Antonio. Remember, he had executed Spanish officers and marooned Archbishop Fonseca's son, along with a priest, in the middle of nowhere. Magellan feared biased tales would be spun when San Antonio returned to Spain. They'd likely paint him as a madman who had it out for Spanish officers and that he was likely serving Portugal. And that's pretty much what they did say. But losing San Antonio was more than that. 
It put a chink in Magellan's armor. He had squashed previous insurrections, but this one had been successful. What about the rest of the fleet? They knew they had a difficult journey ahead. What if they decided to follow San Antonio's lead? I mean, they had found and mapped the strait. That was an incredible feat. Why not just go home? Magellan wrote a letter to his brother, Duarte Barbosa, on November 21, 1520, expressing doubts and misgivings about the expedition. He specifically mentioned the trials and executions conducted in the aftermath of the Easter Mutiny, perhaps fearing that what he had done would come back to haunt him. At this time, he even asked for advice from his commanders as to whether they should return to Spain or press on, something he rarely did. The letter, the longest writings of Magellan to survive the journey, showed discord and doubt and fear. But let's remember that Magellan believes the western mouth of the strait is only days away. He is loath to turn back when he is so close to the western ocean. His astronomer, Andreas de San Martin, recommended going forward into January, but warned that the crew was becoming malnourished and supplies were running low. Whatever doubts Magellan may have had, he soon squashed them, and on October 23rd he gave the order to move forward. The last leg of the strait was ahead. It should be noted that while the Strait of Magellan is pretty barren, it is not without benefits to the fleet's men, especially the last leg of the strait. In addition to plenty of fresh fish, search parties were sent ashore and they gathered wild vegetables and herbs. One of the herbs they found turned out to be a good source of vitamin C, thus holding scurvy at bay. On November 28, 1520, the Armada de Maluca exited the strait's western mouth into the Peaceful Sea, as Magellan called it, a name that sticks to this day. It had taken them 38 days to transverse the strait and reach the Pacific Ocean. The negotiation of the strait is considered by many to be the single greatest feat in maritime exploration history. It is an extraordinary achievement, and much of the credit goes to Magellan. Most men would have turned back due to the ordeals they had endured, but not Magellan. He was resolute, and his persistence and systematic approach had been rewarded. Of course, there were ominous signs. The fleet had lost two of its five ships, and food and supplies were running low. The Easter Mutiny, as well as the desertion of San Antonio, had cast a cloud over the expedition. And if the men of the fleet thought they had overcome the most difficult part of the journey, they were sadly mistaken. What lay ahead was far more deadly than anything they had yet encountered. Next time, Magellan and the Armada de Maluca strike out west across the Pacific Ocean in search of the Spice Islands. Unfortunately, the short journey they believe they have to the Far East is in reality going to be a perilous 7,000-mile crossing over the largest body of water in the world. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. 
If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.